I'm just entrapment. And uh, just, I would compare it to somebody, you know, being Im- imprisoned. Really? Yeah. And, you know, a prison of one's own making. From Spa Damer and Tenney, it's White Coat Wellness, a show for doctors who are ready to improve their financial wellness. We know you work hard to help your patients, but you can't be at your best if you don't have your own finances in order. In White Coat Wellness, we highlight real-life stories from physicians and dentists to educate, encourage, and inspire you to personal, professional, and financial wellness. Now, from Spa Damer and Tenney, please welcome your host, Shane Tenney. Welcome to another episode of White Coat Wellness. I'm Shane Tenney and glad to have you with us today. If you're married or know someone who's married, then you know that there are three tricky topics in most marriages, uh, sex, in-laws, and money. And today we're going to tackle marriage and money. Uh, and I have to be honest, it's a tough subject for me, even in my home and in the nearly 20 years of working with couples in financial planning, I can tell you that there are so many aspects of money that cause stress in marriages, uh, maybe even yours, whether it's whether it's budgeting or the lack of budgeting, whether it's debt, uh, standard of living, the roles that you play in your marriage, or, or even just talking about it, it can be a really challenging subject. And the core issue is actually not even money at all. It's, it's trust. Um, how much do you trust each other in the decision-making, in the management, in the value that you and your spouse place on money. One of the financial issues that can be really damaging in a relationship around money is what's called financial infidelity. uh, When one spouse makes significant decisions about money in secrecy, it's a really sensitive topic that obviously we don't talk about a lot in cocktail parties or in the doctor's lounge, but it's important and it, it has a big impact on relationships and marriages. And so we want to shine a light on the topic today in hopes that hearing the story of others who've gone through this can maybe help either prevent financial infidelity and secrecy in your marriage or give you the courage to address it if the secret is still buried uh, between you and your spouse. And so I'm joined in uh, the studio today with two friends who are willing to share a little bit about their story and their marriage and their journey through this topic. And we're going to give them a little bit of anonymity here. And so I'm just going to call them John and Joan and not going to give you a complete CV. Uh, I think that would disclose too much, but uh, suffice it to say, John is a physician and, uh, and Joan manages everything else about their lives. And, uh, and I appreciate you guys very much being willing to come in and tell your story to help uh, encourage some of the folks listening today. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Let's, let's dive in the shallow end of the pool first here. Um, (laughs) Can you just tell us a little bit about yourselves, your marriage, maybe the role that money has played in your relationship, at least early on? Well, it's hard to know where to begin. Exactly. Uh, I would Might I suggest the beginning. I would say, um, it's just such a long story. <laughs> so yes, I, uh, I'm a physician. Joan and I met when, uh, I was still a student and I, um, uh, would say I came to medicine out of a scientific and analytic type of um, background, um, that pool of, of interests. thought about doing a lot of different things within science and uh, wound up uh, choosing medicine because I thought that would be 
a place of best fit. In terms of the role that money has played in our relationship, mainly I would say my focus on it over, you know, our whole time that we've been together has been being a good steward of it. I just, my own life history saw uh, different mistakes that uh, my parents had made um, in managing their money and was, uh, I was very focused on avoiding that, maybe almost too focused. And we can get, get into that uh, later. But I, I would say being prepared, being a good steward of our financial resources um, has been the focus for me. What would you add to that, Joan? Well, I was a high school Spanish teacher when we met, and I was in charge of my own finances. And I had my money and my little investments going on, but it was nothing like now. And I was just mainly focused on getting a little bit set away for retirement. And when I met John, he was a student, and I know his mother was helping him financially. He didn't have a job. And so we were coming in from different angles. When we first started out in our relationship, his father had had issues with finances, whereas his mother was a really great bookkeeper or knew how to invest her money wisely. And I know John took it upon himself to not be like his father was. And he was, I really trusted once he started taking the finances in hand, he really seemed to to devour everything about it and really get involved with it, which I admired a lot. And I really trusted his judgment. Mm -hmm. How many years have you all been married? 22. 22 now. Yeah. And, and so Joan, tell me a little bit about as you, as you navigated the early years of marriage through med school and then moved into residency and, and you saw John's acumen for finances and just felt comfortable with that. What, what type of process did you go through in terms of just setting goals or talking about money? Uh, how'd you decide on, on those sorts of things and the type of well, I planning? Think, I think wanted? we always were pretty good about it. We were always a partnership trying to come together. We, we decided on a budget. I, I mean, I like to spend a little bit of money, but I was, I was never really irresponsible with it. And he wasn't either. We, we just naturally kind of, came together with a good budget plan. I mean, we both had the same goals with having money for retirement, have an emergency fund. I'm not sure what else no, other think, than that. Yeah, just, I think... Um, I mean, the only difference I could say is that I've always been a little bit more careful about my investments. I don't want to be too risky in my investing. And I think right. you were definitely always a little more aggressive. More of a risk taker. Yeah. yeah for sure. Yeah, we, I mean, what I remember was very early in our relationship, I was compared to now much less concerned about how much I was spending. And, you know, now the good part of that was, you know, I had a lot less, you know, room for, to make some major error. When you're living on a residency income, you don't right. have a lot of margin. For and we, it. we did have some credit right. card debt though, too. Yeah. We had a substantial amount of credit card debt throughout med school, uh, throughout residency. And, you know, that was one of the first things that I tackled, um, when we, when, you know, I was out in full-time practice, 
the other thing that I remember was probably midway through residency somewhere becoming just more aware of the need to have our finances in order and have some sort of pathway. Your biggest goal always was to not have any debt. Right. Never have debt, to get rid right. of the debt, pay off any school loans, any kind of debt. You know, our cars, you were really on top of it. Right. And aggressive about paying off debt. And, and I think, you know, we did a good job of that. We, I guess, just spontaneously evolved a framework where you were tracking our budget and just day to day spending right. and bills. And managing all of that, which was a part that I did not typically manage well, all of that fine detail. And I was, my job, I guess, was to look at our investments and how we were invested, which is where we got a lot of help from uh, your firm in figuring all of that out. And that was, that's kind of been the general framework we've pursued you decided shortly after training to to bring in a financial planning team and, yes. and help you navigate that was that kind of a natural decision for you both or or was that a big big decision i, I think we had a fairly large discussion about it because we weren't really sure if we needed one or not and then but when you start getting into the amount of money we're talking about i I don't really, I didn't really know much about investing and I trusted John's opinion and mm -hmm. I'm not really sure how we, if it was a recommendation initially that got us going in this direction from a colleague. Well, I remember the, the, the how we arrived at the decision to, you know, find a financial advisor and uh, eventually how we came to work with your uh, firm when uh, I was a, uh, in my fellowship, um, I knew of disability insurance policies that were offered through your firm. And I think that's how I originally learned about your firm. And then eventually, uh, when we were uh, a bit more settled in the area and uh, had uh, purchased a home and felt that there was you know, going to be some, some permanence to uh, our being uh, in the area, uh, then that's when, you know, I sort of started to feel both overwhelmed and, but, you know, just realizing that I need, you know, that we needed formal assistance. Mm -hmm. So John, as the years went by and you uh, developed a plan and executed on a plan and and followed your innate hatred of debt and some of these sorts of things as you got as you began to realize hey we're we're making progress here was it a feeling of relief uh was there a a feeling of restlessness for what's next what, how would you describe that i would say a little bit of not relief exactly i think that would be you know the wrong word i tend to be nervous by nature and in, in terms of future directions, there was relief in, the, in, in terms of it being feeling a sense of accomplishment and being glad that we accomplished goals. But I've always been, you know, somewhat nervous in terms of how I felt we were 
doing in our planning in terms of, you know, is it conservative enough Is it versus is it aggressive enough? And just uh, trying to figure that out for myself. So I would say rather than relief, just more of a sense of accomplishment, glad that we had made progress, but having made the progress, then looking for, okay, what is the next thing to do now? And so I think the, the term restlessness is actually a good, good description for that. And, um, you know, I have a lot of different interests and different things. And, um, part of the restlessness is curiosity. Mm -hmm. Just kind of a, an intellectual curiosity about other things now that we've checked some of these off the list. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about that intellectual curiosity, because I think that plays a big part in your story and story of others out there uh, right after we get back from this break. I'm Will Coster. On this episode's White Coat Wisdom, I want to speak to all the residents or fellows who are approaching the transition from training to practice. If you're already in attending, don't skip ahead though, because this could also apply to you if you ever change practices. Oftentimes, the transition comes with questions and unknowns. In this short segment, I want to list a couple of tips for transitioning physicians. One of the biggest things I tell someone who is nearing a transition is that cash is king. Usually, there will be a gap in income between training and practice, sometimes a couple months with no income. This is often coupled with interviewing expenses or relocation expenses. Sometimes there are sign-on bonuses or moving allowances, but there is no need to add stress by running low on cash or having to use a credit card to float you until your next paycheck. Especially if you use the downtime for travel or getting credentialed, having cash saved is a good idea to have a cushion between roles. The next consideration for physicians who are transitioning either from training to practice or from one attending role to another is the change in benefits from one employer to another. What will you do with your previous retirement plan? Are there any benefits that you could take with you, like your disability policy? Do you know what the options are for electing benefits at your new employer and how to best utilize them? Something that is often overlooked when it comes to benefits and transitioning is the potential for gaps in health insurance. It is important to know when your benefits from one employer end and the benefits from the next begin. If you will have a gap in health insurance coverage, what are your options? Transitioning can be a busy and stressful time. Being prepared and knowing what to pay attention to can be the difference between a successful transition and one that is filled with risks and mistakes. For this episode's White Coat Wisdom, I'm Will Coster. So, John, you were mentioning right before the break that as you and Joan progressed financially towards your goals, there was a sense of accomplishment, but also now kind of more blank canvas to be thinking about and exploring other things. I think you use the word intellectual curiosity. Um, how did you, how'd you handle the, the intellectual restlessness, how that manifest in your financial decisions? Well, I would say that it started off as most of these stories do, uh, they start off with a good intention and, you know, I was looking basically for more and additional success. And uh, it started off with me reading everything I could get my hands on, on various topics having to do with investment. And 
like any good plan or any good uh, venturing into learning more about a topic, you get to a place where you feel like you know enough that you want to start doing or trying something. I had always been interested in doing some investment on my own and a lot of that intellectual curiosity sort of focused in on that. I started looking at at various things that I could do that were, you know, different. Like what what sorts of things could you? The main things that I looked at were things uh, such as, I would say, more active types of investing, specifically things having to do with uh, private equity types of investments, particularly real estate. And then things having to do with uh, trading types of strategies in the stock market and looking at single stock investment and looking at trading strategies and uh, trying to do those. Mm-hmm. And Joan, did you, did you know what was where John's interests lie and kind of what was, what was happening there? I had some abbreviated knowledge of it. It was, it never was really spelled out to me in detail what he was doing clearly. I really trusted him. I always figured he knew what he was doing because he was so informed about everything. So I I pretty much just left him to it. Especially since I didn't really value my own knowledge of investing. And so yeah. you you started your answer by saying like a lot of good stories that start out with good intentions. I think it, yeah. it started out small and innocuous and then and then yeah. grew with some That's exactly right. I think somewhere in our earlier conversations about this that um, uh, either you or I brought up the word hubris and I think that's a very good word for what eventually came about. Yeah, I started out well intended. This was going to be something on the side, limited in scope and, um, and what happened was the more I learned the more confident, falsely confident I became in what I could do. And soon, you know, I had grown a number of accounts that had gotten bigger and bigger, some of them fueled with debt. And within probably about a 18 month to two year time frame, you know, got in deep enough, certainly that I became uncomfortable. So one of the things that I wanted to do was, uh, in, in doing the project was give it enough power. And I didn't have enough spare cash lying around to provide that power. And so one thing I did was take out a fairly large home equity line of credit on our house, which had been paid off prior to that point and was using that to meet things like capital calls to finance uh, certain trades, etc. And at that point, when I had maxed out the credit line, I realized this is a huge problem. I'm in way too deep. Mm-hmm. And, and this 
this whole element that started out as kind of a, I think I might say just a fun hobby that might be additive to your overall plan instead began to threaten your overall plan. Is that? That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. That's that's exactly what would happen. I think, you know, I was fortunate in our case that, you know, I got in deep enough to realize, okay, I'm in trouble here and I need to do something different. And because had I gone beyond that point, then the risk of, you know, having a really, you know, massive loss that would have had a very negative long-term impact you know, would have gone way up. The, the odds of that happening would have gone way up. And if I could, if you could clarify, mm-hmm. uh, did the investment decisions that you were pursuing, you mentioned like uh, private equity and mm-hmm. real estate, things like that, did those investments themselves turn turn south and become detrimental to you or or was just the the com- the complexity of it exhausting or or was it, the juggling of those things, hoping it would work out, but Joan not working. Was that the, I guess I'm just wanting to yeah. understand and help our listeners kind of understand what was the, what was the stressful part of it? Right. Well, really it was all of those things. Uh, so first of all, what I was trying to do was very ambitious. And while I had certainly learned a lot compared to what I knew before by no means. And I, and I realize this now I didn't realize it then, uh, by no means had I accumulated enough knowledge to really put the type of plan that I wanted to do into practice in a sound kind of way. And I just did not really have a good appreciation of my own limitations of knowledge and really just developed a blind spot about how much risk I was taking on exactly. The way that worked was everything was fine for a few months, no problems. Then some of those investments did start to take on losses. And then I became concerned about, well, what should I do to make up the losses? And the way I dealt with it was by taking on more risk in order to increase the chance of, of, you know, if you don't risk anything, you won't make anything. Uh, of course, if you, the more you risk, the more, the greater the chance of loss, uh, at least in the short term. So that meant that I was taking on more complexity, more risk, more complexity. The more risk and more complexity, the more danger, the more I became uncomfortable with it, the more I felt like I needed to not say anything about what was going on um, to Joan. And at a certain point, I got in deeply enough that I really just wished I could could get out and take the moderate losses that I had sustained up to that point and just stop. But... At the same time, I felt, you know, a lot of shame about where I had gotten us already and really wanted to make up for it, turn it around. And so, you know, things went on like this for close to another year. And what were Um, you feeling? What was the 
what was the growing emotion within you during this time? I'm just entrapment. And uh, just, I would compare it to somebody, you know, being Im- imprisoned. Really? Yeah. And, you know, a prison of one's own making. But it was beginning to, you know, occupy enough of my attention that, you know, it was really, you know, almost, be- well, not almost, it was becoming an obsession and really pulling a lot of energy and enjoyment from, you know, every other area of my life. Mm -hmm. John, I've, I've heard other folks in the financial field working with physicians and, and intelligent clients talk about the bias towards complexity. I think you and I have had a conversation about this at Mm -hmm. one point. Mm -hmm. Um, Explain a little bit of your understanding of that concept and and kind of the role that it played. Right. So I think that physicians, generally speaking, certainly operate in a complex environment and an environment that has a lot of uncertainty within it. And you do that long enough, you become comfortable operating in that environment through years of training, years of learning about things. For me, the error was to think that, well, if I can deal with that kind of complexity and uncertainty, then I should be able to handle another area of complexity and uncertainty in a, in a completely different arena in which I had no, I had none of those years of training or background or practice to navigate the, the pitfalls Part of it is a fascination with, for me, is a, is a fascination with complexity just due to my particular biases and, and interests. The background that brought me into medicine, uh, a lot of scientific, analytical, uh, almost engineering type of interests. And um, so this was an appealing type of problem for me to try and solve. And the more complexity, the way I viewed that was that means, well, there's more, more options to succeed, losing sight of the, the downside of complexity, which means, you know, yes, there's more options to succeed, but there's also more opportunities to failure, to fail. And you'll be assured of not really understanding why, because yeah, of the complexity. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so the, the year and a half or the period of time you're describing where, where you, got intrigued by some outside ideas, began to educate yourself, began to pursue them, sustained some losses, and I I guess pulled a classic double down. (laughs) Let's try to recapture that. And then you just ended up in a cycle that, that uh, I think you described as entrapment. At some point you, you got to like, this has got to stop and you just had enough. And, And that was, I think when, when you, you decided just to, come open up with Joan about everything. Right. Well, he had run some investing ideas by me, which I opposed in a big way. And I think that was the breaking point. What the last one that you ran by me and we got into an argument about it and it was over the phone. And then you decided you needed to, to get some advice Right. From someone else. Right. 
and and then it came became clear it was out in the open how far this really was going, which was a surprise. Right. So eventually this built up to the point where certainly I was in way too deep in terms of uh, percentage allocation of my investments way, way over allocated to these projects that I had come up with. And what I observed was I began, you know, not only doubling down, but then making, you know, extremely unwise decisions, both with trading and selecting certain of these private equity types of investments that I was interested in. And then it just became apparent to me how stressed out I was over it and how it was what I noticed with that feeling of stress was that, huh, you know, I did not really exercise good judgment there. And that's not something I would ordinarily have done under other circumstances. And it just began to dawn on me that, you know, that this was now dangerous. Not only was it too much of a good thing that had grown, you know, too big and was getting stressful, but it was also, you know, getting to a point where it was, it was financially dangerous and and needed to stop. And is that when you came to Joan and said, here's what's happening or what happened then? Well, uh, I came to you um, at first, basically just sort of out of a sense of crisis. Okay, what do I, this situation I'm in, what do I do about it? And I almost had an idea at the time that I could somehow, you know, still you know, dig my way out of that. And what I remember was uh, you took a look at sort of the whole big picture of all of the different types of investments. And cause I didn't know either. Yeah. Yeah. You had no idea. And I, you know, I didn't, uh, didn't highlight it in our meetings, did not draw any attention to it. And yeah, I really worked hard to keep a lid on just exactly what was going on and how extensive it was. And basically, I mean, we talked a good half hour to an hour about it. And you just said, look, this has got to stop. You know, you're going to get destroyed by this. And I think beyond just that, you know, we talked a lot about how, you know, this had sort of become intellectual curiosity on steroids and that, um, you know, it had become almost an addiction, definitely an obsession, and that it had, you know, reached unhealthy levels. Especially when it's a secret from your spouse. Yeah, and that was the other major thing that you pointed out to me. The first thing was the financial impact. The second thing was the stress of it and what that was doing 
And the third thing was, Joan has no idea any of this is going on. And you need to tell her about it. And what happened then? How'd that conversation go, Joan? Well, I was pretty angry and there was a lot of yelling. I think the thing that really stuck out to me is, well, I always knew he was pretty obsessed about finances, but I always trusted his judgment. And learning about these choices, I just, I still find it hard to believe. Like, how could he have done that? Because he always was so focused on paying off debt and saving for the future. And they seemed like such a contradiction, like just not something he would do. But I can, I can definitely see it in his personality, how he, he does want, he can get overconfident about something like that. And it can become an obsession and hard to let go. And it's also hard for him to, to admit that. And so when he did that, I was actually, despite all of the anger, I was really proud of him for stepping up to the plate and saying, I made a mistake and I do want to, I want to do better now. And that was probably really difficult um, for John, which. I think the most difficult thing about it for me was realizing that it was, you know, I had gotten to a point where it was certainly a massive violation of, you know, my own principles. Uh, and it was out of character for me. And that, um, you know, not only did I feel ashamed by it, but just for having, you know, gotten into that situation in the first place, but also the, the, you know, long period of time where I just was not, you know, I was keeping everything very close to the vest and not telling anybody anything very secretive and about things that really, you know, should not be secrets. And that's true. I mean, I would ask questions about our finances and I would sort of get these vague answers. Yeah. Which is really, really frustrating because I mean, on the one hand, I wasn't really that interested. On the other hand, I was getting such vague answers. It was. Yeah. Well, you wondered what was going on mm-hmm. and yeah, on, the, on the one hand you it was a violation of your own character and a violation of the trust that joan had in your exactly decision making um, and you know everybody has their slip-ups and areas of vulnerability but i just felt like you know i should have been better than this that it was a real violation of my own feeling of integrity in my own actions so once i got past the shock of holy cow i've arrived at this point and never thought i would wind up in this situation i really wanted to make amends and do the right things what was fix the situation yeah and, uh, and it sounds from your comment, Joan, that it was very hard to hear. Yes, certainly. And, and at the same time, you appreciated the courage it took and the humility that it took to come together and the impact on your marriage after John opened the, up the with The thought you. that I keep thinking when you, when you say that is just, I keep thinking 
everything's good, but we always need to be vigilant. And I, I'm always a little afraid because I do have some lost confidence and it's hard to, to, it's not like I have that same trust and confidence in his investing ability anymore. And yes, we'll work towards it. And I know he's very honest now, but there's always that fear. And so it is infidelity is a good word for it because once it happens, you always have that kind of in the back of your mind, like, could it happen again? And I think we just always need to be vigilant and stay on top of it and talk and be transparent and understanding and also know when to stop. And, and now have you all put in uh, agreed on any change in decision-making procedure or anything like that to, to just help the communication and help the trust? What One of the first things that we did in, in the wake of all of this was decide that all decisions would be transparent ones. I had enough integrity remaining that I didn't want to continue to keep secrets and that if there was something that I wanted to do financially that I would run it by Joan and discuss it with her. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's good that we have your firm or you involved in this as a third party being more objective because because our investing natures are different. Our strategies would be a little bit different and then we sort of have you as a referee. Yeah, I, I our, totally... Our, in, our investing infidelity marriage counselor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a yeah, tall I, order. I totally agree with that, and it is a tall order. You've, you've been very, uh, very patient uh, with us through that process. Um, but I really think we, you know, are in a, a much better place yeah. now. And you know, the benefits extend beyond restoration of integrity in that part of our relationship the decision making is more sound for starters and none of the the what i would describe as very negative energy around it is is there anymore and that that was becoming very distractive and very destructive yeah when i ask as we're I guess nearing the end of our time, Joan, what's been the, the best part of all this for you? Well, I always realized that I was completely dependent on him to make all of these decisions or just be in charge of that. And for me, I think it's important that I know, and I think both people in a relationship, whoever has the, holds the reins of the investing, they need to be more transparent and open with their partner because it, it really does that other person a disservice. I just think that's something that's come out of this and just to be open I'm just, and to see yeah. what can happen and to know how we can grow together, learn about this, understand. I mean, it is a weakness, but it's also a strength to, to step up to the plate. And, and so even though it was a bad, there were several bad decisions at least John owed up to it. And I admire that a lot. Mm-hmm. I do too. John, what's been the best part of untangling this whole thing to you? Uh, the best part of it for me has been 
first of all, getting out of a bad situation, getting out of a situation where I felt started to feel and did feel very bad about myself for some time. And now, you know, feeling that I am, you know, in a better place, functioning according to a better framework. Also, that realizing that I'm more than these financial decisions and financial status. I think I had become entirely too caught up in that and needed to have uh, a different different focus. What would you, as we wrap up here, I'm sure there's somebody listening to us who either is is living in secrecy in their relationship. Either they've got a secret investment account or they borrowed money from their parents without telling their spouse or they told their spouse they paid cash for the car and they didn't or all kinds of things that take place. What words would you have for for someone who's kind of in the midst of this now? I'd say the mental burden of it all isn't worth it and they need to to talk with someone about it and share what's going on either just to get advice or to work with someone on how to get out of the problem. Because as John has admitted the obsession, it was overwhelming. He was imprisoned and I could see that. I mean, he'd spent a lot of time up in his office working on investing and it was kind of ridiculous how much time was being spent. But now I know it was what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I would say that in terms of encouragement, the good news is if you're in a bad situation or you're in an area where you feel like you're not behaving with integrity, you can change that. It's enough. It may not be pleasant and it, it you know, it won't be pleasant. It'll be painful, but it is can be changed simply by stopping the the behavior and valuing your relationship uh, with your spouse more than whatever, you know, happens to be the the focus, be it a secret account or uh, money that you've borrowed from somewhere without your spouse's knowledge and that you can work in a more transparent way. And that's a better partnership. I think so. I think so. Well, I'm uh, I'm proud of you, John, for the courage that it took for you to call me and then to talk to your wife because your relationship is way more important than unwinding things yourself. And I think you're you're on a better path, or you're back on a great path. And uh, and I think there's a lot of sunny days ahead. So. I'm proud of you, and I am so grateful for you guys coming in to uh, just share your story and hopefully be a real, a genuine encouragement to uh, to other couples out there, maybe younger than you, uh, maybe older than you, who need uh, need a good word today. So thanks yeah. for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm Will Coster, and on this episode's White Coat Achievement, a segment that highlights noteworthy achievements by your friends and colleagues. We're featuring a physician wellness advocate who is dedicated to improving surgeons' well-being, practice performance, and patient outcomes. 
Dr. Jeffrey Smith is an orthopedic traumatologist in San Diego, California, and the founder of Surgeon Masters, which offers a vast array of resources for surgeons. Dr. Smith is on a mission to support and empower surgeons to create highly successful and sustainable medical practices with a heavy focus on treating burnout in surgeons' careers. He runs the Surgeon Masters podcast to share tips and insights with fellow surgeons. This physician advocate also developed Wellness Edge, a wellness and resilience training program designed to help surgeons through self-inquiry and find opportunities for growth in their lives and practices. Dr. Smith is not only doing his part in raising awareness of these key issues in medicine that impact wellness, he also presents formidable burnout prevention strategies. As always, if you know someone who is wearing a white coat and is achieving something noteworthy, feel free to drop us a line. We'd love to hear about it. Might even feature them on a future episode. But this episode's white coat achievement goes to Dr. Jeffrey Smith for recognizing the need to promote wellness in the surgeon community. Thanks for joining us for another episode of White Coat Wellness. Appreciate you being with us today. Remember, there's plenty more episodes coming out about every other week. If you'll subscribe through Google Play or the Apple Podcast app where you found us, we've got show notes below uh, with more information. You can also join our private closed Facebook group called White Coat Wellness, where the conversation continues. You can interact with other colleagues from around the country on any issues that are wellness related. Uh, if you have any suggestions for topics or questions or reviews, uh, feel free to email me directly, shane at whitecoatwell.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll see you back here next time. This episode of White Coat Wellness is over, but you're not alone on your journey toward financial wellness. Spa Dame Rinteni has been helping physicians and dentists with their financial planning for over 60 years, and we'd love to answer any questions that would be of help to you. Visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Once again, that's sdtplanning.com. And we'll see you on the next episode of White Coat Wellness.